Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Please view our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Our speaker this evening attained his Master's of Divinity and Master of Arts degree in Moral Theology from Mount St. Mary's Seminary in 1989. Ordained to the priesthood in that same year, Monsignor Pope has served at several parishes in the Archdiocese of Washington and was named a Monsignor in 2005 by Pope Benedict XVI. He has served as pastor at Holy Comforter St. Cyprian Parish in Washington, D.C. since 2007. He also blogs regularly for the Archdiocese of Washington. So please join me in welcoming back Monsignor Charles Pope. Welcome, Monsignor Pope. It's such a blessing to have you with us this evening. All right. Maranatha. Let's, we're going to start with a prayer, yes? Yes, please. Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Well, we pray this in hope, but also in a kind of a reverential fear, because we realize that uh, you're coming is not just, uh, well, we have to be ready for it. So we do ask you, Lord, we can't get ready on our own, but uh, we can cooperate with you to get us ready. So help us to remember in Advent that this is a time for us, Lord, to please turn to you and beg your mercy. We come before you like blind beggars. And we ask your mercy and your grace, for without it we perish. Without it we'll never be ready. But only with your grace, your help, your saving precious blood, and your glorious power of your resurrection, uh, can we hope to attain to this glory you have prepared for us. So teach us, Lord, to be serious about our walk. And Advent's a great time for us to reflect on this in a very countercultural way. We ask all these things, Jesus, in your holy name, you who are Lord forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Now, I want to, you know, the, the theme here again today that we've been, I've been asked to talk on is this idea of, uh, you know, this, uh, um, the, the, the idea of Maranatha, Maranatha. And, um, it, it, you know, the word Maranatha, uh, there's a little bit of debate among scripture scholars. I would say there's a pretty general consensus that the best way to understand that it's an Aramaic word, all right? It's not a Greek word. It's an Aramaic word, and it's an interesting thing that Paul actually, the only real occurrence of it in the Bible, you might call it a hapax legomenon, as they say in the Bible studies, is, a, is, is where a word only occurs once in the Bible. And it, it occurs in St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians in the 16th chapter, the first letter. Now, some people say, well, I, I'm kind of familiar with it being at the end of the book of Revelation. Isn't it there, too? It's, it, it, is a, it is and it isn't. It, it's not there. It, it says, come Lord Jesus, at the end of the book of Revelation 22. But it, the, the word Maranatha or Maranatha is not there, whereas in it's not, in other words, they don't, they don't take the Aramaic word and just sort of put it into Greek. Rather, they take the, uh, they, just, they just put it in Greek, come Lord Jesus. Now, we'll, we'll look at that more in a minute. But what does the word mean? Well, most scholars agree today, I think, that the best way of interpreting it is marana 
Tha. Uh, so the last three letters are kind of a separate word. Marana Tha. There are a few people, though, which means come, or, you know, our Lord, come, 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 Lord. There are some who argue that it could be translated Maran Atha, uh, which means uh, our Lord has come. Our Lord has come. One is more expressed in the form of a wish. The other is saying that the Lord has come. Now, I'm going to put something up here on the screen. I hope you all can read it just so you understand why would this be kind of a head scratcher? Why would this be something that isn't clear in the text? Now, if those are all capital letters and there's no spacing between them. That is what Greek manuscripts from the time of the Bible looked like. They were all called uncials, capital letters. There was no, there was no space between the words. There was no punctuation like commas and things. It's just what it looked like, just that all capital letters. And you had to know your stuff. Now, if you look at that, some of you will say that says God is now here, but it, or somebody might say God is, it says God is nowhere. You see how you can see that either way? God is now here or God is nowhere. And so you can see that, that there are going to be times where especially where a rare word like uh, Maranatha, which isn't even going to be a Greek word, it's an Aramaic word just transliterated into the Greek. It's kind of a head scratcher. Um, most would agree that contextually it would, it would seem that, you know, may our Lord come, you know, may, uh, you know, our, our, our Lord come um, or come Lord. Hmm? The other possibility, though, is Maranatha, the Lord has come. OK, so all that said, would, would you not agree, though, that as a believer, both are true. The Lord has come and the Lord will come again. <laughs> and uh, this is a part of our faith. And uh, so. What we want to be able to do is to sort of just at least get acquainted with the word because this this was in the title of the talk tonight. Now, clearly, we also you also saw in the description of the of the, of the talk for tonight that there is an essential thing that we need to remember. I think we've gotten better at it in the church than we used to be. Uh, that the, the, the season of Advent is more specifically focused on the second coming of the Lord then, in fact, it, it, it is focused on the uh, first coming of the Lord. It's not just a season to prepare for Christmas. That Christmas has been fulfilled, okay? Now, I hope you do prepare spiritually for this great feast of the church's year. You ought to. You ought to get to confession. You ought to uh, be engaged in works of charity and love and probably a little shopping, right? Okay. Like one of the things you might do for your shopping list is give a little something needed to the Catholic culture, right? Okay. Yeah. All right. But again, all of these are ways of saying that, yes, Christmas is on our radar. But really, if you look at the readings and you look at some of the history of this season, that its main purpose was to emphasize that Christ is going to come again. Now, uh, in order to demonstrate that, I would like to read to you, and some of you have been with me on previous lectures, may be familiar that I've read before. There is a certain hymn that most of you have heard of before. In Latin, it's called Dies Irae. Now, just by a show of hands of our panelists, can most of you say you've heard of this, this hymn, Dies Irae? It used to be done in the Requiem Masses. It still could be, but it was a sequence hymn. And if you go to any of the great Requiems like Mozart, the one of the Italian master, um, you'll hear the Dies Irae set to music. Now, what's interesting about the Dies Irae is that it was not written for the Requiem Mass. 
It was written by Thomas of Solano in the 13th century, in other words, the 1200s, and he wrote it for the second Sunday of Advent, the second Sunday of Advent. That's what it was written for, okay? Now, um, this coming second Advent will be where the Lord, where the Lord is, steps back and John the Baptist is preaching and he's saying, you better repent because the Messiah is coming. And then these temple leaders show up and he says, well, who told you, you brood of vipers? Who told you to repent? <laughs> he said, look at you. He said, I want you to know something. And pardon me for putting it to me. He's going to kick your butt when he comes. The axe is laid to the root of the tree and the winnowing fork's in his hand and he's not playing around. You better show some real proof of your repentance coming out here like that, you know? And um, so that's that, that kind of a gospel prepares us. Last Sunday's gospel, Jesus said, you need to be ready for an hour you don't expect. The Son of Man will come. And so a lot of the readings of Advent, especially in the earlier weeks, are about his second coming. And we might also call it his sudden coming, you know? Just when people are saying peace and security, he'll come suddenly on a sudden and let him not come on a sudden and catch you unaware. Okay. All right. Enough on that. But let me read to you some verses from the Dies Irae. It's really a magnificent, you know, I'll just, I'll just give you a few lines in Latin, but I'll read it in English then. Dies Irae, Dies Ila, Salvet Sequim Infabila, Teste Davi, Cum Sibila. Okay. Now, the English is, uh, poetry is in a slightly different meter, but I'm just going to read this translation. Day of wrath and doom impending, heaven and earth and ashes ending. David's words with the sibyls blending. Oh, what fear man's bosom rendeth when from heaven the judge descendeth on whose sentence all dependeth. Wondrous sound the trumpet flingeth through earth's sepulchres it ringeth. Um, all before the throne it bringeth. Death is struck and nature quaking. All creation is awaking unto his judge and answer making. But lo, that book exactly worded wherein all hath been recorded then shall judgment be awarded. And when the judge his seed attaineth, and his hidden deed arraigneth, nothing unavenged remaineth. What shall I, frail man, be pleading? Who for me be interceding, when the just are mercy needing? Mm. Oh, king of majesty tremendous, who does free salvation send us? Fonta pity, then befriend us. Mm. And he goes on then to set in this, he goes on for a good number of verses, but he goes on to set if you will, the case for mercy. And I'll just read a couple of these, you know, cases for mercy. Think, kind Jesus, my salvation caused your wondrous incarnation. Leave me not to reprobation. Oh, faint and weary, you have sought me on the cross of suffering brought, bought me. Shall such grace be vainly brought me? And then there's just one other one I'll read here. Um, through the sinful Mary, namely Mary Magdalene, through the sinful Mary shriven, and through the dying thief forgiven, thou to me a hope is given. And finally, after a number of other verses, it ends with the beautiful lines. It says that man for judgment must prepare him. Pharaoh, God, in mercy, spare him. requiem. Amen. Your Lord, O pitying Jesus, bless. Grant to the dead eternal rest. Amen. And so that's, this, that's a hymn. For the second Sunday of Advent, it doesn't sound like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, although think about O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, even that. Listen, we saw, sometimes we sing these songs, but we're so busy singing them, we don't think about the words. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of, uh, the, till the son of Justice appeared. 
and rejoice. You know, so there is this longing for a Messiah that's not, that we need a Savior, okay? So with that in mind, and some of that background, I wanted to just kind of look at the title of our talk, Maranatha or Maranatha. And I want to I wanted to explain that a little bit in the context of what the subtext that you had for tonight's talk, which is that Advent is a season fundamentally to prepare for the great second coming of the Lord and for the judgment that we will all one day face. Now, I want to go with you to the one occurrence in the Bible where Maranatha occurs, all right? If you have your Bibles and you want to turn, it's 1 Corinthians 16. It's in the 22nd verse. So let's see here. I'm just pulling my Bible open. The 22nd verse of 1 Corinthians 16. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Maranatha. It says in the Greek. Now, a lot of English Bibles today just translated, our Lord come. But um, in the original Greek, it says here, you know, it says, interestingly enough, if anyone doesn't love our Lord, Anathema sit, Maranatha. And it's very interesting, isn't it, that those two words, Anathema, let him be cut off, let him be cursed, let him be excluded, damned, so to speak. If anyone will not accept again the, 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 and love our Lord Jesus Christ and accept his teachings, Anathema. And then he says, Maranatha. It's almost a rhyme, isn't it, in, in the Greek? Anathema. Then he says, Maranatha. So there's a very interesting juxtaposition there, isn't there? You have this sort of warning. All these things I've been writing to you, these teachings, this, this doctrinal content, this moral content, everything I've taught you, I want to tell you right now, you be careful to remember, if anyone will not accept this and love our Lord and his teachings, he's cut off. And then he says, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, or come. Now, you might, some of you may be familiar with the uh, neocatechumenal way. Uh, they have a very interesting pantocrator that their founder painted. Um, and it's interesting, it, 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 like a lot of pantocrators, you see Christ seated in majesty, and he's holding open a kind of a book. And there's, there's different things on both pages. And it says, on one page, it says, I am coming soon. And the next page, it says, love your enemies. <laughs> so you start to see that this is more than, this is more than a, a, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, it's just, you better, in other words, love your enemy because I'm coming soon. And if I find you hating your enemy, you know, the measure that you measure to other people, I'm going to have to measure to you. So it's a call to a kind of a salutary fear. And what they do in that is they, they put those two texts side by side. I am coming soon. And then love your enemies. You know, there's a lot of this stuff in the ancient Pantocrator things. You know, you look for the text and you know your Greek and you can kind of figure it out. You can see that the text that they juxtapose, juxtaposition, as you might know, means to put something side by side or to sort of put it opposed or alternate to each other. So on the two panels, I'm coming soon. Love your enemies. Paul says here, anathema, maranatha. You know, you can laugh if I say, ha, 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 you know, anathema. Let, let, let this person be cut off. Let them be excommunicated or cut off from the body. But uh, they can say, who cares what the church, a stupid old church, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, maranatha, the Lord is coming. 
You know, don't uh, don't mess around. You know, don't mess around is, is the idea with uh, Maranatha. It sounds like a joyful greeting, and it is. It's, it's like hallelujah. There's a it's meant in a praiseful way. But if you're not ready, and you're anathematized, you're cut off. You're uh, excluded. Uh, and Christ comes, He's not going to find you as a member of His body. And people like to make light of the church and our pronouncements and uh, and so on. So I was talk- I was talking to a woman some years ago, about four years ago, she was writing a column about me. At the time, I maybe not four years, maybe like three years ago, I'd, I'd gotten COVID. And for some reason, there was this um, notion going around that I had been making light of COVID and wearing masks and stuff. And that isn't true, although I, I didn't like all this running around in fear either. But anyway, she, she, she was going to write a pack of lies about me, which was published in the Washington Post. I was talking to her and I said, you know, young lady, you are going to answer to God for what you do. Whether you, you, you can defame me, you can defame other people, you can go on writing columns like this and make false accusations that I told you are false. You can go ahead and write it, but you're going to answer to God one day. And she said, oh, I don't believe in all that stuff. And I said, you're still going to answer to him. You can say, well, I don't believe in all that stuff. But you're still going to answer to him. See, so that's the idea here. Paul uh, juxtaposes these ideas of um, anathema, and the very next word is maranatha. And I don't. I want you to see, therefore, the idea of maranatha is is, a, is an invitation to holy fear, to holy reverence. That I'm going. I'm going to answer to Jesus one day for what I do. Now, it's also a sign, though I would say, of beautiful consolation. Because I would imagine all of you, if, you know, most of you, if not all of you, have been deeply hurt in life by people who may have done and said terrible things to lied about you or misrepresented you or abused you or harmed you in some way. Uh, some of you have been, you know, badly treated. You know, and sometimes we cry out to God and, and you know, sometimes we just have to let God say to us, look, I want you to say, I want you to listen to me. I saw everything they did and I heard everything they did. And I want you, to, I'm going to promise you, they will answer to me for what they've done to you. See, now I want you to give it to me now. Don't hate them. I will deal with this, and they will answer to me. Let's hope they repent before they die, but if they don't, and even if they do repent, they're going to talk to me about what they did to you. So there's a consoling aspect to this as well, right? Our Lord will come. You know, leave some things to the wrath of God, St. Paul says, right? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. So if the Lord is going to come and we pray that he come and we pray that we be ready when he comes, we want to have a salutary fear that we not be cut off from the body by serious sin or formal excommunication of some sort. We also want to, though, also rejoice in the fact that everything unjust has ever happened to me or people I love or a group I love, uh, you know, know, that was racism and so on. All these things will be adjudicated. All these things, people will answer to God for what they have done, all right? Now, I just wanted to show you this in 1 Corinthians 16, this very interesting juxtaposition that the only occurrence of the word Maranatha, the Aramaic word written that way, is in 1 Corinthians 16. Now, a lot of you think that, again, in the book and the book of Revelation, I think because of the Jerusalem Bible, may have put the word Maranatha in English translations, but it's not really there in the Greek text. Okay, there are, it's all Greek letters. It says, uh, you know, you know, come Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the spirit and the bride say, come. The spirit and the bride 
Say, come, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, come. But it's in Greek. It's not in the Aramaic, okay? So I hope I haven't been digging this in too much, but I want you to see that this very word Maranatha is juxtaposed with this word or this warning that if you won't heed the message of the New Testament, the message that the Lord has delivered to us through his apostles, you are anathematized, you are cut off, you are in some way excluded. And don't make light of that because Maranatha, our Lord, our Lord will come. Okay. Now, with that in mind, um, I want to also then go to another text that we sort of read, but we don't sort of read in Advent. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, if you are one who reads the Office of the Readings in the new breviary, you know, the, the one I would say most priest and religious read, there are some who use the old breviary. There are some in other rites of the church that have a different, you know, office that they say, but for most of us in the Roman rite, throughout Advent, from the, from the prophet Isaiah, and we read the first, we start right with the first chapter and the first verse. I want to, before I read this text with you, but if you want to open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter one and verse one, you can do that now. But while I get there, I, I want to say to you that there's another jazzy word. We've talked about anathema, which means, you know, uh, let them be cut off. You know, it's anathema sit. We, we know that that's a, a common phrase that was used by the councils of the church. Uh, we talked about the word maranatha, and I also want to use talk about the word kerygma. <laughs> kerygma is another $10 church word that we like to use. And it's, it, it refers to the uh, eight or so sermons in the book of Acts that you'll find preached. Peter preached uh, several of them, Paul, I thought Stephen preached one. Um, so you, you read these sermons, these addresses given to the people. And this is called, it, the word kerygma just means preaching, but it, the word kerygma is used to distinguish these sermons or these homilies as being the opening, if you will, argument that the apostles brought to the world. These were the first eight public sermons, at least that are retained for us to see. And they all have a very similar structure. Now, if you want to get on the internet and look up some scholarly article on the kerygma, they're going to go on and on with all these moving parts and they're going to have all this, it has this thing and that thing, da 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 i got a simpler version for you. Some of you heard me give it to you before. Here's my, pardon your, the, the expression, urban dictionary version, but the common man's a definition of the kerygma. Are you ready for it? I'll tell you a couple of times. It's not very scholarly, but it gets to, it, it, it tells you what, here's the kerygma. It, it goes like this. You got it bad and that ain't good, but there's a doctor in the house and his name is Jesus. And if you will go to him and give your life to him, he'll fix you for the mess you are and he'll fix the mess you made. So again, the kerygma, you got it bad and that ain't good, but don't worry. There's a doctor in the house. His name is Jesus. And you'll go to him and repent. He'll fix you. He'll fix the mess that you are and the mess that you made. See? Now, you'll notice, again, it's a kind of a slightly longer version of repent and believe the good news. Now, what we get wrong in the modern church is nobody wants to talk about repent. And nobody wants to talk about the bad news. And nobody wants to say, man, we really need a savior. I mean, we're like, a this is a real mess down here. And not just everybody else, me too. I'm a mess. I need help. I need a savior. See, and, and because we don't preach that, 
Well, you heard the expression. If you don't know the bad news, the good news is no news. And we're not doing a very effective job of properly, in a good balanced way, preaching the bad news. You got it bad, and that ain't good. Repent, in other words. You need to come to a new mind. You need better priorities. You need a new way of thinking. You need to clean up your act. And, uh, you know, you need to come and really listen to the Lord, and he'll go to work in your life, see? And once he goes to work, you're going to start to see some of these, you know, arrows being pulled out of you, arrows of sin and suffering and anger and bitterness and fear. These things will begin to get pulled out of you, and, and you'll become more and more free. It takes time, but you you come now. You got it bad, and that ain't good, but there is a doctor. That's the good news. So repent, but also accept the good news that someone, can help you from the mess you've made and the mess you are. Now, why do I say that? Because I want to look at Isaiah. And these are really the opening words of Advent, if you follow the Office of Readings. I wish we were doing a better job maybe of reading this daily Mass and spending more time with it. But Isaiah is is not playing any games here in the opening chapters. Some of the later chapters, he's much more consoling and reassuring, you know. But in these opening chapters, he just says it plain. Now, let's get the context, and then we're going to start reading the text. The context is this. It's seven, in 721 BC, the Assyrians completely wiped out the northern tribes of Israel, laid waste the whole of Galilee and what we call today Samaria, would just laid waste the northern kingdom. All that was left now, all that was left would be the southern kingdom of Judah, few members of the tribe of Dan, and the Levites. These, that's all that's left, just a small remnant, okay? As Isaiah writes this, it's probably before the Assyrians have been turned back, because they wiped out the northern kingdom, then they came south, and they surrounded Jerusalem. And this is about the time when Isaiah writes this text to ancient Israel. Now, why do I say that? Well, because he seems to presume that God can help them if they turn to him at this point, but that hasn't happened yet. Now, what did happen? They did turn to the Lord. They did call on the Lord and make promises of reform. And the Lord allowed dysentery to spread through the Assyrian army. Half of them died and the other half just went back to Assyria. So for another about 200 and some years, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem would be spared. Okay. It would seem that this opening, these opening sections of Isaiah were written right at that period where the northern kingdom had been wiped out. And now the Assyrian army was threatening and coming south and beginning to set up uh, a palisade around um, Jerusalem. Okay, so I hope I've done enough background. Now let's begin to read some of this text. I want to read some of the verses and stop and comment. But this is hard hitting stuff. And this is the stuff that, you know, sometimes we don't spend enough time in Advent really studying, all right? These opening chapters of Isaiah are really quite stern and shocking. And they really lay out the fact that, you know, you're you're a mess and you need a savior. It starts out, the vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, which the, he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, uh, some of those kings were wicked. Uh, Hezekiah did engage in some reforms under Isaiah's encouragement. Ahaz was kind of a disaster. Uh, Ahaz, you know, was kind of a coward and he just, you know, he wasn't really, um, uh, Ahaz was just, well, he wasn't a good king. All right. But there are some 
reforms that come with Hezekiah. All right, now, here comes the text. Here, and this, this is in the form of a read, where God is speaking in the form of a lawsuit, an indictment. I'm laying out the charges before you. I want you to understand why this happened, says the Lord. Why did that northern kingdom get wiped out? Why did 10 of the 12 tribes get wiped out? Here's why. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Sons I've reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know, and my people does not understand. So we begin immediately with this idea, I've done what I could. I've tried to teach you, lead you, but you're stubborn, you're knuckleheaded, you're boneheaded, you don't listen, you have necks of iron and foreheads of brass. You are not, you're, you're resistant to my guidance, says the Lord. Now, there's a very interesting thing, and most of you hopefully see the connection. Notice it says, the ox knows its, its master's, uh, see, it says here, the ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's manger. Well, it says your crib, but manger means a feed box, right? So why do you, when you put up your nativity set, put an ox and a donkey or an ass in there? Um, well, now you know why. Right? When St. Francis of Assisi began this tradition of, of putting out these nativity scenes, the first ones he did were actually live. You know, uh, people would gather and come and there'd be you know, a spectacle, so to speak. But at the end of the day, there'd be a donkey, uh, you, know, or, you, know, you know, the text often says in the Bible, an ass or a mule, you know, and then you would have uh, an ox. Why? Is it just arbitrary? No, it's right here. The Lord says, look, you know, um, you, you know, you're, you know, by the way, oxes and donkeys are known for their stubbornness and stupidity. And so he said, even an ox and an ass knows how to find its master's house and its master's manger. You, man, you're not you're not even that smart. OK, so it says here again. Uh, verse three, the ox knows its owner. And the donkey or the ass, its master's manger. What is a manger? A manger is a feed box. You and I know that Jesus was born in a place called Bethlehem, house of bread, and that he was laid in a feed box. A manger is a feed box. You think of them as wood. They're not made of wood. If you go to Jerusalem, uh, I've been there about four times now. You see mangers and they're made out of stone. They're basically stone trenches where you put the grain or other things, oats or whatever for the or grass for the animals to eat. So Jesus was, they took him, they then laid him in this feed box for the animals. So you start to see that this is pointing forward to Christ, right? And you also start to see that Francis of Assisi wasn't saying, well, let's just get a couple animals and put them in here. He didn't just arbitrarily pick them. He knew this text, see? And I want you to once again say, you know, we like to congratulate ourselves very frequently. We've been to the moon and back. Look at all our technology. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, the Lord says basically to these people of old, but he also could say it to us. He says, you know, the two dumbest animals on this planet practically are the ox and the ass, but they're smarter than you are. And they're coming to boot. But I, they know how to find their master. They know how to uh, come home. And you're out there. You're dumber than them. You're dumber than an ass. You're dumber than an ox. <laughs> Tough stuff, huh? So next time when you put your manger scenes out, think about that as you put those, <laughs> those two animals there. Okay, moving on. Verse four, uh, sinful nation, people laden with iniquity. 
offspring of evildoers, sons who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Now, notice again, does this sound a little familiar? No, sinful nation. Notice this, a people laden. You know, to be laden means to be carrying a heavy burden. A burden, you see. We always like to think in our culture, you know, hey, man, I can do my thing. No one's telling me what to do. But what are the things that also most mark our culture today? Addiction. Um, not just addiction, you know, to drugs, but people's credit cards are maxed out. We buy stuff we can't afford. We're $30 trillion in debt at the federal government level. Um, we just don't seem to have any. We're just laden. We carry all these burdens, you know, the, 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 the fruits of addiction and suffering and greed and all these things weigh us down. And then after that, all the sexual sins, all the sexually transmitted diseases, the broken families, the broken hearts, the teenage mothers, abortion, all the stuff, you know, heavily laden with our sins, you see. And this is how we are. We, we like to say, hey, no one's telling me what to do. Get your rosaries off my ovaries and get your Bible out of my bedroom. And I can do what I please. I'm free. And Jesus says, no, you're just a slave to sin. You know, the only real freedom. Here's what freedom means for the Christian. It's in the catechism. Freedom is the capacity to obey God. The greatest freedom we can have is to go to God and obey him. Because that's our greatest freedom. He's not taking away our fun. He's giving us, if you will, defending walls of his law to keep the evil one at bay. You see, But here we have a description of a sinful nation that says, ah, I ain't got to listen to God and all that old God talk. And don't tell me what to do and get your. So we live in a culture where we've together, uh, we have marginalized God. We've rebuked his scriptures. We, we, we actually have people who pridefully celebrate with parades a lifestyle that God condemns. People are celebrating their abortions, calling it women's health care, proudly announcing, you know, that the, 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 quote, right to kill a child in the womb up to the very day of birth. You know, no shame anymore. It's just right out there. This is where we are. Now, there are good, decent people in this country. It's not, we're not all doing this, but it is the big picture. And so God says to them, and he says to us, ah, sinful nation, so laden with your iniquity, laden, heavily burdened, burdened, weighed down with sins, right? Offspring of evildoers. You know, we talk a lot about the greatest generation, you know, that was a coined phrase, I think, of uh, a book uh, that came out some years ago, the, the greatest generation. And in a certain sense, they were the greatest generation. I mean, these people went through the Depression. They fought the Second World War. And they came home and they built the interstate system. They put the dams, the Hoover dams, and all these things up. They, 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 they left us a mighty legacy. But they raised the most rotten, spoiled, self-centered generation that has been known in a long, long time. My generation, the baby boomers. Anyone born between 45 and 65, you're with me in this mess. We are, we were a spoiled, rotten, 
group. We threw everything overboard. We were iconoclasts. We laughed and scorned it. Everything was old. It was bad. We went into a, I'm saying we collectively speaking, got all involved in drug use, LSD, fornication, all on mommy and daddy's dime in the um, colleges and so on. Uh, Woodstock, all that nonsense, that just foolishness that we engaged in. Look how we destroyed the church and threw away the traditions and we just left. I have, I often apologize to the young adults. I know I'm so sorry we left you such a mess, you know, and we're beginning to die out and we can't. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't mean to sound too awful, but I don't think we can die out fast enough. You know, just get out of the way. You're not going to help. Just get out of the way. You know, and you got a lot of these baby boomers hanging on. I'm 61 now. You'll be stuck with me for another maybe 15, 20 years. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it, we can't disappear fast enough. And this is offspring of evildoers, you see, and we've left. And then sadly, it is true. I will say this. I'm very excited that many of the young adults who come to mass are much more pious than their, their parents and grandparents. They go to confession. They go to adoration. They pray the rosary. They want real solid food. They don't want all this pablum. Uh, they want the real they want the real deal. But they're a small minority. And we'll see that in a minute. This will come up. They're a small group because most young adults aren't going to church. Most young adults have no real faith and have uh, been poorly indoctrinated by a hate America first group. And um, I hate your country, hate your church, hate your traditions. Um, So but the ones we do have in church are kind of a self-selected group. And I think they can make a good faithful remnant that we can see this thing through, right? So, and I know that, you know, a lot of you here with me are baby boomers. We're not all evil to a, uh, to a man, to a woman, but our group really did damage, major damage. So God bless the greatest generation, but they raised a rotten, spoiled generation. So again, back to our text. Oh, you sinful nation of people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers. Sons who deal corruptly, corruptly, goes on to say they've forsaken the Lord. They despise the Holy One of Israel. So what we've done in our culture is to largely marginalize God. Church attendance is at an all-time low, and the pandemic only made it worse, you know. Uh, Talk about shooting ourselves in the foot, right? You know, the liquor stores are essential, but you can close the churches. And we went along with that, you know. Shame on us. Shame on us. And, um... But again, these are the things that God kind of lays out this indictment. He says, you know, you can marginalize me, but here's what happens. See, you know, you can't even find the right bathroom now. See, that's how that's what happens when you just take God and throw him off to the side. And isn't this uh, transgenderism the most demonic thing of all? As bad as all the exaltation of homosexual behavior and so on and fornication and adultery and all these other things. This transgender thing is to say, can the pot say to the potter, why did you make me thus? I'm quoting from, you know, Jeremiah there, you know, we're throwing back into God's face what he's done and said, you goofed, you screwed up. I will not listen to you, you know. So this is just downright demonic. It's a total attack on human nature and on the nature of nature itself. We can just make up reality and everybody has to go along. So you start to see this is what happens when you marginalize God, when you push off to the limits and you take the basic biblical text and the narrative that we were all accustomed to and just discard it and disregard it and actually intentionally go against it and suppress it. You can teach anything you want in a public school, except Jesus, you know, go ahead, teach Muslim stuff, teach whatever, 
but don't you mention, don't you bring that Bible. So again, these are the kinds of things, you know, there was a cartoon that my, one of my secretaries has on her wall downstairs. There's this girl crying out, you know, after one of these school shootings, why did you let this happen in my school, Jesus? And he said, well, they kicked me out. You know, and that's what we've done. We kick Jesus out of the schools. You know, we kick God out of the school. You know, okay. Again, I could go on with my commentary like that, but you see what I'm saying? We're in trouble down here. We really need a savior. All right. Now, moving on, the text says um, uh, they are utterly estranged. Goes on, verse five. Will you, why will you still be struck down, you that continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and bleeding wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. These wounds, and most of them are self-inflicted wounds in our culture. We've done this to ourselves, you see. What I find most interesting is sort of this weird self-hatred that's set up in this country. Oh, we're bad. We Americans are evil, especially if you're a white male. But we're all bad somehow. We did bad stuff. And we're just, well, yeah, I, we did. But we're also, uh, there's also goodness that we have to build on and something we got right. And so, but this is a weird, you, know, you see what the devil does is he takes something like humility and acknowledging our sins and he mocks and excess and makes them excessive and takes them out of context so that we develop a self-hatred. St. Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 about two kinds of sorrow. There is godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And he says, godly sorrow produces repentance unto joy, whereas worldly sorrow just brings self-reproach and death. And that's what we've got going on. It is a fraudulent, satanic version of repentance. This hatred of our country, this hatred of the West, hatred of Christianity, and this is taken up even by voices in the Vatican who go around making apology tours that people came and preached Christ. I guess Isaac Jogues and all those Jesuits who went there and lost their lives, apparently they were just all wrong. From what you would hear some of these Vatican officials being saying, you know, we're in a real mess. And it's, it parades around in pietistic clothing, but it's a fraud. And Satan does this, you see. He takes holy things and distorts them. Okay. So this is where we are, sick. The whole body, the whole head is sick. From the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness anywhere in the body. There's just bruises and sores and bleeding wounds. And they're all, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil, right? So again, even the healing that we should be seeing and having is just absent and is rejected. And um, I want to just say, you know, as a priest, uh, I, I think, again, some apologies are in order that so many of us who would be priests and are supposed to be doing the healing and bounty binding up of the wounds and so on are ourselves more wounded than many of the faithful in the flock. All the scandals and the things and also the lack of real commitment, a sense of I'm going to battle and here's the way we got to go. You get a lot of like, well, I hope that the team will win today. Uh, let's all go home now and um, have a nice week, you know. And we're, it was just business as usual. Why? Well, really, our, our, our whole culture is just a meltdown, you know. And so thanks be to God for every one of you because you're signs of hope. I mean, some of us still get it. Some of us realize that we've got to go to God and listen 
and try to get other people to listen to God and, you know, make sacrifices like many of you do. Spend money, send money, help. You know, not every one of you can teach, but you can help the, the institute to, to teach. And there are good teachers that can be engaged. And there are those who can get out there and be on the point of the spear and get out there and, and fight the fight. And they, we need those of us who are doing this teaching need your help. We need your support. Frankly, we need your money. We, but we need everything we can to get this word back out there into the ears of God's people. Now, I do a lot of radio work, too, and I'm going to tell you, it's astonishing the testimonies that we often get. Somebody who hasn't been to church ever, and they're just their life is empty, and they just flip them through the dial, and they pick up this Catholic radio station. So at first, I was kind of laughing, but I started listening. I said, you know what? They're right. And converts, people that you'd never expect are being reached through the Institute of Catholic Culture, through radio and, and, and the, the outreach that are going on. Oh, my goodness, we've got to have this. So it does go on in the church. But those of us, many of us clergy who should really be leading the battle are more wounded than the, than the flock. So, as I say, we, you know, get out there sometimes and just sort of uh, kick a priest in the butt and say, you can get out there more, Father, you know. I expect you to be at the clinic with us next week and we pray to end abortion. Don't just say, oh, Father, what do you think about joining us? Say, I expect to see you there. Hmm? Summon someone of the courage. Huh? All right. Okay, it goes on to say here, remember the context. The whole northern kingdom had been wiped out and now Jerusalem is surrounded like a, we'll see here in a minute, like a hut and a melon patch. You know, they're all surrounded by their enemy, the Assyrians. So it goes on to say, verse seven, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burning with fire. In your very presence, strangers devour your land. It is desolate. It's overthrown by strangers. As the daughter Zion and, and, and the daughter of Zion is left like a like a hut in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. In other words, how is it, Israel, that your enemies have prevailed over you? How is it now, Judah, that you're surrounded by the Assyrian army? How is this? How did this happen? Where did your strength go? How did this happen to you, you see? And the Lord is saying, you see, um, I'm, I'm asking you to really think about this, you know. And I, I'm, I'm going to be wrapping up here in a couple minutes. We won't go through the entire chapter one here. But this is, you see how hard-hitting this stuff is. This is not, this is maybe not the Isaiah who says, comfort, give comfort to my people, saith your God. This is the, this is the hard-hitting Isaiah who had to say, look, you messed up. And God says, you know, the only way to fix this is for you to turn back to me. And so it says here in verse nine, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few, a, a small remnant, we would be like Sodom and become like Gomorrah, okay? And then he ups the ante. He says, so hear the word of the Lord, Sodom. Give ear to the teachings of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Those are, those are fighting words, okay? What, is, what to me are all the multitude of your sacrifices? It says the Lord, I've had enough of burnt offerings and of rams to, and the fat of beasts and I don't delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or he goats. You know, I don't ask this of you, you see. But again, he does ask it of us. But what he asks is that we make these sacrifices with a sincere heart. You can't buy off God. Oh, well, I went to mass. So we're done here. Checked off the God box. Now, God has to leave me alone for the rest of the week. Or I gave a little money in the collection, you know, checked off the God box, you know. I'm sorry, you know, we can't do little cheap rituals 
Um, I think, well, I've, 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 I've done it what I need to do. I mean, we have to, we go to mass, which is a glorious transformative experience. At least it's meant to be, to be changed, to be transformed so that we become the one we receive. And so you can't just glibly go check off the God box, walk out the door before the mass is over and say, well, did that. Okay. So there's this, uh, this, you see, you know, why have I gone through all of this with you? Because again, these types of readings from Isaiah, which some of us are reading in the office of readings, if you're not one who normally reads, you might want to just read these opening chapters of Isaiah and see, you know, why do we need a savior? See, what's this all about? He's called our savior. Well, thanks, Jesus, but I'm basically in good shape. I, I know how to pray. I can read the Bible and, um, you know, I, I sometimes drink a little more than I should, or I sometimes, you know, get a little angry, but, you know, basically I'm okay, you know. And, and, that, and we, we get kind of lost and we, we forget, you know, you look to a crucifix. I'm looking at my crucifix here. Really? Did it take that to save me? Yeah. Is it really that bad? Yeah. Let's go back to those lines again. The whole head is sick. The heart is faint from the soles of the foot, even to the head. There's no soundness, but bruises and sores and bleeding wounds. Oh, I'm not in that bad of shape, am I, Lord? Well, <laughs> yeah. See, what happens to us is that we say, well, I'm not as bad as that prostitute or that drunken sailor or that evil politician. Not, I'm not that bad. Yeah, well, but that's not the standard, right? You know, it's not, you're not going to get to heaven by being better than a prostitute. You know, Jesus says, you must be perfect as a heavenly father's perfect. Now, can, can somebody finally say, Lord, have mercy? <laughs> because if you understand the stand, you're like, uh-oh, I guess I do need a savior. <laughs> Oops. Okay, I'll tell you what. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Hmm? Let's, let's get this going now. Maranatha. Uh, come, Lord Jesus. Um, Maranatha. Maranatha. Um, but, you know, if you don't really lay hold of the quote, bad news, the good news is kind of no news. And this whole idea of getting ready for Christmas and being joyful that we've got a God who cares enough for us to come and, you know, he'll read us the riot act because any good parent will do that. But he, he'll say, come on now, you come to me and I'll, I'll you, you take one step and I'll take two and start running. But let's get this thing going because, you know, I got to save your soul. You know, you think it's all done. It's not. Do you know how holy God is? Do you have any clue, you know, of the glory, of the beauty, of the majesty, of the magnificence and glory of God? And to think that we can just kind of walk into God's presence and give him a high five, you know, the way some people treat liturgy today, you know, it's just all so casual and goofing off. And Mrs. Murphy has a birthday. Let's all sing happy birthday. You know, and then, you know, but I mean, you know, we, we, we become very, we treat God as very ordinary and we trivialize God if we're not careful. But if you start with the holiness of God and you come with a holy and reverent fear before God and say, you're awesome in your holiness. And Lord, I don't know. How could I ever stand the beautiful light of heaven is so bright that my eyes can't take it. So get me used to it, Lord. You know, I, I can't stand the magnificent heat of your love. So get me used to the warmth of it, you see? And these are the things that we have to go to God with great humility, okay? And um, with a, I would say what we would call a holy fear, a holy reverence, right? Not a, necessarily a cringing fear, but look, if that's all you got, would go with it. 
You know, you remember how Jesus would sometimes appeal to that. He says, you know, you're all running around afraid of this and that. He says, fear no one. But I said, here's what you should fear. Fear the one who has the power to cast you into hell after destroying the body. Now, who is that? That's not Satan. That's Jesus. He's talking about himself. Satan can't put you in hell. The only judge is Jesus. And he says, fear him. So if, if you don't even have what we might call a higher fear, oh, I just love God and I hold him in awe, at least use your fear of punishment. Go with it. And let's see if we can bring it to a higher level. But at the end of the day, Jesus is not a, uh, is, is not um, the kind of a savior who will, uh, well, I'm not going to use a fear-based argument. He says, no, you all fear the wrong thing. You fear human beings. You know, All they can do is kill your body. You know, you better, you better start having a little more fear for me who can has the power to determine your entire future, you know? And if all you've got is servile, cringing fear, go with it. But let's see if we can get you to a fear that's like, I just love God and don't want to offend him. I just, he's so awesome and he's been so good to me. Yeah, we want to get there. But let me ask you a question. I'll finish with this and we'll have some quick time for questions if you want. But most of you have raised kids. You don't reason with a two-year-old. A lot of us talk about why it is not a good thing to hit your sister uh, and steal her toys. No, you just threaten punishment. Don't ever do that again. <laughs> now, you're not going to reason with a two-year-old. But when they get older, if you've raised them well, you can start to reason with them, you know. And but so a lot of us aren't we just because we're adults doesn't mean we have an adult spirituality. There's a lot of people in typical pews on a Sunday morning who are not going to respond to higher arguments about God is so good. Let us also be good. Yeah, right. You know, we're going to get my next drink and I'm looking for a girl, you know, I mean, you got to hit them with something that, that they can really relate to. Find out what, you know, say, now look, you know, you're going to, you're in for a butt kicking. If you don't convert, you don't change. And Jesus was not immune from doing that. And neither should we be, you know, but so that's what some of this Isaiah text is about. But the main goal for us in Advent is to kind of get hold of the fact that God is very holy and he's coming in glory. He's come already at Bethlehem, but he's coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. And, you know, that's not something to take lightly. And it's, it's important to get ready for that. And the, the best way to get ready is get on your knees like a blind beggar and say, Lord, I need help. And the Lord says, I, I'm glad you know that. And uh, let's go to work and let's let's get started. Okay. So I hope this wasn't too negative. And I'm just reading from Isaiah here. And this is the text that we open with in, uh, in the Office of Readings. And a lot of us are reading that who are required to. So maybe, I don't know, I'll let, um, I'll let uh, Kelsey or, or, or Father Hezekiah to see if there's any time for questions or rebuttals. <laughs> or well, Monsignor, you know, first of all, thank you. And you weren't too negative. I think a little kick in the, in the in the rear end is good for all of us, really for the whole church, to be honest with you. And so your words come as a bit of a, a breath of fresh air. I, you know, we were we uh, were just communicating a little bit, making sure all of our stuff was in order here with the staff. And and Peter says. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. just been too long since we had Monsignor Pope at the ICC. So, <laughs> you know, we're giving you a big thank you for being here and being with us and taking the time to, to out of your out of your schedule. I know you've got a lot to take care of the flock that you have and then to reach out and to be with us and to pastor us this evening is much appreciated. Monsignor, the only thing I got to disagree with your whole talk about about is it's not time. It's not time for your generation to die. 
it's time for your generation to get saved. Yeah, well, and that's <laughs> and that's what the ICC is all about because we got to stop pointing the finger at the next generation and say what's wrong with them, and they got to go to Sunday school and they got to learn the faith and they got to get married in church and they got to do. This. It's time we have put a big mirror up in front of us and say, what am I going to do to make sure that. <laughs> The, the church today, the, the parents and grandparents are strong in the faith, strong in the Lord, because we're the ones that are going to be meeting the Lord probably sooner rather than later. And uh, and uh, and so I so it's it's time we, we we take that to heart tonight. So I'm going to I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to take a talk like this that Monsignor Pope's given. It's a real hard hitting talk. I say I want to make this available to as many people as possible. So we have a real priest teaching real, uh, you know, the, the teaching the faith and not holding back and calling priests to like you're saying, Monsignor, calling priests to action. It's enough. Is enough. I'm too busy. You're not too busy. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> what's that? I just had the wrong priorities, <laughs> the wrong priorities. So listen, I'm going to ask, I'm not going to be ashamed to do it and say, say my brothers and sisters, we need your support here at the ICC as we head into this uh, season of Advent toward the Christmas season to help us make Christ incarnate in people's lives, to be teaching the faith, to give them this gift of the fear of the Lord, to say, yes, my relationship with the Lord is a real relationship and I'm going to stand before him. And the life he's given me to live, either I live it now or I'm not going to live it then. You know, mm -hmm. we're either going to do it together or we're not going to do it at all. And Monsignor, I've, I've thought about this quite a bit lately, especially in, really, in regards to marriage. I really believe that it's, it's, it's rare for one spouse to go mm -hmm. to heaven and the other not because we're, we're made one in marriage. Right. And it's yeah. the same thing in our communities. Mm -hmm. Either we're going together or we're not going at all. Yeah. Either we're going to make a difference in our church or we're not going to make a difference. And we're going to do it together or we're not going to do it at all. Right. We're all, all in or we're not going to get there. You're right. on, the super, on, the, on the playing field and we're throwing the touchdown pass in the Super Bowl Sunday or we're not. <laughs> so you want to make a difference and you want to make it happen. Yeah. And you want Monsignor Pope teaching the people in your parish pews. You help us make it happen. Yes. So that the Catholics and the, and 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 not only the Catholics, because I know we have a lot of Protestants in here tonight, not a lot of non-believers that come and join us that are seeking. And uh, and and I, I'm, I'm sorry, I want Monsignor Pope teaching them. Mm. And if you agree with me, make that happen and make that happen this evening. And Monsignor, your talk was a was a serious call to action as far as I'm concerned and, and very inspiring. So thank you very much. Excellent. Excellent. I love personally. I, I love the We can't even find our, our, our way to the bathroom. You know, it's true. <laughs> Yeah, that was, that was wow. a good. One. How did we get this bad? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but we're gonna help people find their way to the right bathroom here at there the ICC and, and and stop the nonsense. Kelsey, we're gonna go. Do we do a little bit of question and answer for people that are writing their questions tonight? Yeah, great. Thank you so much. Um, we have a good question coming in from Sylvia here. So Sylvia is writing in and she says, uh, "Well, first, thank you for your great insights. Do you have any specific suggestions for how we can help our pastors?" respond to the call to action and to engage more in these much needed activities? Well, I mean, I, I, th I think, as I mentioned in the talk, I think the time for just suggestive, oh, thank you, Father. It would be so nice if you would. Um, I think you have to um, get a few folks together and go and really uh, insist, Father, we really need you to come to pray with us at the clinic, or we really need you to come with us. Uh, you know, we, we need the, the parish to set up this uh, program you know, for, for our children, I wouldn't try to go alone. I really would. I would gather a few like-minded souls and go and say, father, you know, we need more solid food. You're good. You're good at this. You're good at that. 
But at the end of the day, Father, we, we want you to help us to help others to know the faith. And of course, to plug Father into ICC here and all the different offerings here as well could be very, very important. Um, so again, all of those are, I think, you want to be practical, not just kind of vague. So I, 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 those are things that kind of help priests, you know, because a lot of times people want things to be better and Father needs to make them better, but there's no real, aha, is there something in particular you're suggesting and, and so on. A question coming in here. Can you speak more about the fear of the Lord that you mentioned during your talk? It's not something that I really understand. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly not a popular idea in the church today. I've never heard a priest preach on it, on, on the fear of the Lord in my entire life. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that a lot of people like to do is at least a good place to start is to do, make a definition to the effect that the fear of the Lord is to hold God in awe. Well, OK, it, does, it certainly is that. But I, 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 I think that I respected my father growing up. Now, my father wasn't perfect like God is. But let's just say I respected my father growing up, not just because I thought, well, he's a pretty smart guy. And uh, but he could he could kick my butt if I if I got out of line, you know, uh, and that we, we've lost that idea. Let me give you a quote from Gregory the Great. He says the job of the priest is to go on ahead of the terrible judge to follow. He's talking about Jesus. We can hardly imagine talking about Jesus like that today. Now, maybe the word terrible, but, you, you know, but we've got to say, Jesus says, the father judges no man. He's given all judgment over to the son, that the world will revere or fear him. Uh, so in other words, I think that we, we ought not simply cast aside the idea that servile fear has no place in the life of a Christian. Jesus appealed to it all the time. He said, look, you know, I'm telling you right now, if you don't come to believe that I am, you're going to die in your sins. You, you know, he talked about Gehenna. Most of the teachings on hell came right from the mouth of Jesus, warning after warning uh, about judgment. You know, the wise, there's wise virgins, there's foolish virgins, there's there's the sheep, there's the goats, there's those on the right, those on the left. All these stories he's telling, he's saying, you need to understand something. You're either going to be ready when I come and call you or you're not. And stop, you know, we, we need to suggest, oh, I'm for Jesus would not say that. And the Jesus, I know. And so we, we keep trivializing him and we don't take him seriously. So I think we want to try to avoid just simple cringing fear. That is not the goal. But very often, like I said, with a two-year-old, you're not going to have, you're gonna have to usually just use cringing fear with a two-year-old. And not all of us, not everyone is ready to just hear, well, there's a higher love. So that, like we say in the act of contrition, I'm not, I'm not concerned for my sins so much because of my your just punishments, but because they offend you. So good and deserving of all my love. That's a good place to get to. But not everybody is there. And priests and others who preach and teach shouldn't presume that. And we should rediscover a language that is able to speak that we, we ought to have, you know, the Lord can and will punish us. And that's, that's actually a sign of mercy. At the end of the day, he's going to judge us. And he says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my teachings in this generation, I'll be ashamed of him before the Heavenly Father. He's not playing around is the point. And somewhere we have to recover a way to speak like more like Gregory the Great and a little bit less like some sort of whiny, you know, trivial person who's trivialized Jesus, you know. So that's best I can do. Just keep teaching and preaching on it and rediscover the respect. Take Jesus seriously. Don't turn him into some boyfriend or some, you know, kind of trivial, uh, you know, storyteller. He's the Lord. 
And Amen. Obedience. All right. Amen. So that, was, that was a long answer. Sorry. No, it's beautiful. That's beautiful. Uh, we've got a, a question coming in. A very good question regarding Advent, Monsignor, because I know it's it's a it's a confusing time. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, I was going through. I was on. I made a big mistake. And I decided to do a fix some blinds on Saturday, you know, so mm-hmm. I went to the store. Yeah, it's, it's like, it, it's the last thing you want to do is go to the store, Black Friday or whatever they call Saturday and forget about it. Okay, so there I am. And my and I got, I'm, I'm pushing the cart with my my, my little daughter and she's going, daddy, daddy. she's grabbing and then got the Santa Clauses and poofy things and the blow up things. And they're going, it's terrible. It's a very confusing time. How are to live as live the advent season through the question actually can you share your thoughts on advent as a time of preparation what spiritual exercises do you recommend during this time before christmas yeah well i I certainly think more spiritual reading is important you know um i did recommend you know this idea of maybe reading through the first 10 to 12 chapters of isaiah um these are you know that's an important way but also i think you know your home is your castle you know, we can, you can, you know, kind of set apart and, you know, keep and And one thing that is available, we don't always have to go out to shop in the marketplace anymore. We can sometimes shop online and lessen the influence of the crazy marketing schemes where they have Christmas up right at, on November 1st. I do think that we have to be intentional about not buying into, you know, the whole culture around us. And we have to it be intentionally countercultural about these things and and tell our children you know why give your love to the world that hates you you know you're all into whatever the world wants you to do i got news for you the world hates you if you're a christian and um why why love that and the prince of this world is the devil so why listen and follow the way of the world let's let's follow jesus it's much better that way you know anyway Okay, I, Kelsey, I, I got to take this this question right here only because it's a shameless plug for the Institute. The question came in and so I'm going to give it here. Monsignor, you spoke about our generation being so corrupt, but this is why I'm at the ICC. I thank God for this opportunity to get it right after a lifetime of wandering. The ICC um, is is calling me to entirely new life in Christ. I'm so thankful. Can you speak about what we can do to turn our Catholic Church around and help people wake up again? Yeah. Well, you know, I want to tell you something. I, 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 this is, it might not sound like the immediate answer to your question, but, you know, we have been, when I was ordained um, 35 years ago, uh, we had a, a, a Gallup poll at that time that said only, uh, only 18% of Catholics could uh, properly answer the true teaching on the Eucharist. So here we are now, 35 years later, and uh, they we're stuck at 18. They hadn't moved the needle a bit. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly convinced that we have taught well and appropriately on a pretty wide scale about the true presence in the Eucharist. But here's what I think happens. People go to churches where this is not really, they don't see that. People don't take seriously the true presence. They show up wearing anything. They're casual. They're goofing off, talking, having a great, you know, it's all anthropocentric, very little theocentrism. The liturgy is more about entertainment. And it doesn't seem like there's true presence. Uh, There is, but the way we act and the way we behave, I've come to discover is probably a lot more important than what we teach. Now we should teach correctly, don't get me wrong, but at the end of the day, how you then take this and live it. So I would say if you're a Catholic, 
one thing to do in your parish, you know, our generation begin to recover, is the liturgy is going to be an important starting point. And the, the way you go to liturgy, you know, dress up a little. You don't have to wear a tuxedo or a prom dress, but I mean, you know, we're, we're, you know, men, we used to wear suits and ties and that, that can still be done. Women would wear a nice dress and uh, you often wear a veil. I'm not, you know, we're not required. They're not required. I get that, but there is nothing wrong with it. And if you feel that, but all these things help to inculcate a sense of sacred. It's interesting in my parish that the most reverent mass is the young adult mass. It's the old folks, my age. It's like sounds like a cafeteria before you know after mass, whereas the young people stay and they quietly pray and they kneel. It's it's it's, it's really amazing the switcheroo because we were the generation that was taught to maintain a proper silence and dress up to go to church, but it's the younger people that do that. And, and so I think that we're making a difference. And I, I would say that although that might just be a, a more narrow focus than what, but I think it's not enough to just. It, 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 we have to teach the faith as we do effectively here, but like you say, it's the Institute of Catholic Culture. It isn't just the Institute of Catholic Studies. Uh, there has to come a point where we live this faith, and uh, you you do a lot of great work in that regard too. So that you're not just doing Bible studies or whatever, which are good, but you also talk about philosophy. You talk about life in this world. We we critique. We 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 make answers to the world we're living in, and we give people a way to think differently and act and, and live differently. So I, I think recovering the culture is going to have to involve making real changes, externalities, little things that can be done in a parish. Like, why don't just get the crazy chalices replated, you know, beat up and bent. And what are you saying when you're just kind of casual about everything? You know, little things, big things, but culture, culture, culture is so critical. I don't think that we were effective in handing on the faith 50, 70 years ago or whatever, just because everyone was so much more holy, but there was a culture in play. We all fasted on Friday. I mean, we all, we abstained on Fridays. We all walked together. And so being Catholic was identifiable. And this was what we did. And we looked and sounded different and we were set apart. And we, you know, this is what we need to, I think, try to recover. And it'll be controversial, but go ahead. I mean, nobody else seems to care what we think. Whoa, people will be upset. Well, they never seem to mind that I'm upset. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess at some point we have to be courageous and say, yeah, Jesus didn't get nailed to that cross because he pleased everybody. <laughs> he caused a little controversy. I, I hope that was close enough, Father, to the... Absolutely. I, I, yeah. A couple of people have written in asking for advice or recommendations on further reading. So, um, you know, the talk that you gave tonight is so needed. We all needed to hear things, the message that you shared, but it's not something that we commonly hear um, either from the pulpit or, or even in the kind of books and things that are recommended to us. Yeah. And we might, we might recognize this need to kind of see ourselves differently, but that takes time. So are there any either spiritual readings or books or even practices like you just mentioned fasting that we can dedicate to maybe yeah. particularly during Advent, but longer term too, just to help us recognize our own need for salvation. Yes. There are a couple of books that I think are interesting. Um, uh, you know, Ralph Martin does a lot of good work in this department. Um, and also he has um, 
He has uh, some other folks that write. I just read a, a, a booklet. It's more of a booklet than a full book, but on uh, the priest as prophet and that we don't teach priests to be prophets. Uh, there's also a, a father, Dwight Longenecker, recently wrote a great book on uh, the battle with the devil. I wish I could remember the title. Uh, I'm also reading a book by Fansega, who's an Italian priest, on, uh, on the deceiver called The Deceiver. These books, you know, just kind of show us the mockery of Satan and, uh, and, and, and these types of things. And we, that we have to kind of recover a sense that we're in a battle. But, you know, it's always good to go to Fulton Sheen. He was always so good about being very clear about uh, these things. I wish I, you're kind of catching me off guard in the sense that I don't have, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at remembering. I'm, I've got four books I'm reading right now. And, you know, tell me, ask me to tell you the titles and all the authors. But I know that Father Longenecker has a good new book out on the on the, di the diabolical. And that there's also a good book by Fansega on the deceiver. Uh, there's several other good books by Fulton Sheen. One is on happiness. And you might think, oh, well, that's kind of a trite notion today. But it's actually very good. You know, he starts out with this, how you got this way. What's wrong with you? you know? And he's good at developing that. And then, you know, he does the bad news and then he comes up pretty well with the good news and so on. But I would say there's all got to be an awful lot of talks here, the Institute of Catholic Culture that are also important. Monsignor, I'm sorry. Are you talking about Immortal Combat? Yeah, that's the title of the book by Father, Van, uh, by Father uh, Longenecker, Immortal Combat. He's actually pretty good at showing... Uh, some of the ancient roots of the diabolical in the gods and goddesses of the pagans, um, the Minotaur and all the, you know, the Cherubus, the three-headed dog, and how these things apply today. Yeah. Monsignor Pope, can you please give us your, your priestly blessing? Yes. Uh, may the peace and the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come upon you all, remain with you always, and may he keep you always generous, keep you faithful unto death. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers and family members. To learn more, get involved and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.